sign who's Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am honored to be joined by Dr. Courtney Ray. Hello, Dr. Ray. Hey, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm so glad to be here. It's great to have you. I am so happy to have you speaking with the Spectrum community, um, in part because you are a columnist on our website, and we'll be talking about your latest column there. Uh, in addition to that, you are an ordained minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And um, most proud, perhaps, of the fact that I knew you way back when we were both undergraduates at yeah, the Department way, of Religion. Yeah, at AU. So <laughs> it's great to have Way a, back in the day. Yeah, let's not talk about how far back it is. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. It feels like yesterday anyway. So. Definitely, yes. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, let's jump in and just talk about your latest column to get things rolling. Folks should definitely read that and uh, what you've been posting monthly for us. Um, the title of it is The Arc of the Moral Universe. And, um, I, you know, it couldn't be more timely. Um, and in this, I'll just read a short passage from it, and I'd love for you to just kind of, uh, kind of tell us um, what you mean by this. So, okay. um, the work of justice also means talking less and listening more to the stories of those who are marginalized. Placing oneself in the position of the learner acknowledges that you may not have all the answers, which can be a foreign position for some people who are used to occupying a space of privilege. I love that because um, for a lot of Adventists, uh, white Adventists, we're used to being privileged not only because of our whiteness, but also because of our Adventism, which mm -hmm. calls us a remnant. So can you, can you talk to me about what you're uh, what you think we need to be doing here as a sort of uh, North American church, uh, at least? Well, one of the things I think that the church could really benefit from is not being so quick to give advice and to tell people this is what needs to happen. And I know that that sounds kind of weird because I remember – um, a conversation that I had just yesterday with someone and they were like, well, you know, I feel like it's mixed messages because um, black people are saying you should speak up, but then they're saying not to say this. And what I would say is it's, there's not a conflict in what um, is really being asked. We want you to say something, to say that this is wrong, that this is not okay when you see racism, when you hear racism, when you hear people uh, floating stereotypical ideas and different things like that, say something. But I don't think that it is necessary 
for people to have all the answers and feel like when we as a community say say something that we're saying um, fix this, share with us, tell us what to do. And I think that there is sort of a, for lack of a better word, a paternalism that can sometimes happen where the idea is that, um, you know, people who live in a space of privilege think that they know the best for um, those who might be marginalized. And so they can um, decide what is the best way to do things. And we see this, and it's interesting that she said not just, whiteness but also Adventism kind of contributes to that mentality and it's true because um, as we know the history of the church not just the Adventist church but the Christian church in general Mm -hmm. has been one of um, you know colonialism and let's go and teach those people over there who don't know as as much as we do um, let's bring them around to our way of life you know let's Uh, make sure that they understand the right way to do things. And that is a thought process that happens and that gets reinforced by our Americanism and also by our Christianity. And so when, and then again, for white people, so you have all of those things that contribute to kind of that mentality. So when um, you come into a space where you might not know all the answers the, or not really have a familiarity with even what the, the question is. Yeah. <laughs> there is. There is a tendency to either do one of two things. One is not say anything at all because um, there is this expectation or belief that you have to have an answer in order to say anything. So, because you don't have an answer, you just say nothing. Sure. Or the second tendency is, um, let me try to tell you what the answer is. Let yeah. me tell you how you should do things. And I've seen this, particularly among my uh, pastoral colleagues, I've seen this a lot, where there has been a lot of um, a rush to sermonize hmm. and theologize what's happening. And to offer a very pat answer um, and sometimes to sermonize to people who are right now feeling very um, put upon, who have been brutalized, who have been victimized, who have been um, the, the people who have been on the receiving end of all of these things and telling them, you know, Christianity says that we need to forgive. And yes, that is true. But this isn't really the time for that. And I feel like instead of spending so much time um, telling black people, this is what you should do, this is how you should do it, um, some of that energy can be directed to people who are in their own communities to say, hey, let us see what we need to be doing. How can we change so that we don't perpetuate these kind of things? And so... I would really encourage there to be fewer sermons towards victims about forgiveness and probably a lot more sermons about uh, per- to perpetrators about repentance and maybe um, changing some of the attitudes. And I know that when I say perpetrators, that might 
sound very jarring to some of the listeners and because it's like, oh, you know, I don't perpetuate racism. I don't do those kinds of things. But we live in a community that is built on a system that is designed around whiteness as the default. And we all participate in that society. And so that is the idea that everyone grows up in, even people of color, even black people grow up in that idea of white people and white culture being the default culture. And it's important to have to unlearn that. And for white people, they have never had to unlearn that. And being in a space now where they're kind of confronted with the reality that, you know, there are things that need to be unlearned can be really, really difficult and really jarring. And I know a lot of people will push back on on that. It doesn't necessarily make you racist to have been in this system because we all are in this system. But it's really important to say, okay, let me step back and see what are the ways that I may be consciously or unconsciously perpetuating some of this, um, these stereotypes and perpetuating this inequality that is systemic and, and and many times invisible. So that was a long answer to a short question. You you jammed a lot of really important ideas in there. I want to focus on something that you were saying um, about kind of, if I put it in my own words, uh, it's, folks kind of taking a step back, kind of falling back and thinking, wait, where is this assumption, um, this this discomfort I'm feeling? Where, what's the assumption that I have? It, you talked about sort of unconscious and you are the president of the Society for Black Neuropsychology. So this is for a chance perhaps for you to help us think about our thinking as uh, Socrates mm-hmm. encourages us to do. Um, <laughs> Uh, is this when we're going into a position where we're learning that we might not have the 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 understanding that we think we do? What should we do in that in that case? Well, I think that one of the things that's really important is to really understand that we all are biased in many different ways. It might not be a racial bias, but we all have biases. Uh, in general. Sure. And what it is, is, and bias isn't necessarily um, always negative. It helps us to adapt to different situations. It's a way our brains are created to try to recognize patterns and patterns help us in our everyday life to kind of help us to do a shortcut in our thinking. You know, Um, if I am out in the woods and I see something, you know, rustling through the grass really quickly, I don't necessarily need to wait and see what that thing is before (laughs) I decide that maybe it's a good idea to get out of here. You know, maybe I need to, to, um, another path or something like that. You know, those inborn biases that we have from work and conditioning from previous experiences helps us to kind of make decisions really quickly that are adaptive sometimes. Sure. But sometimes they can be not maladaptive. So these are behaviors that we might have that make conclusions to people. And many times we don't necessarily um, recognize 
how deeply ingrained some of these things are because we, we learn them from a very, very young age. Um, and I mean, and some of them, you know, when you think about, when you think about, for instance, I'll just speak for myself as being a woman, you know, if I am walking by myself and it's nighttime and I hear footsteps behind me, I don't, it's not necessarily something that is bad for me to say, hey, let me walk a little faster or turn around and see who's behind me because I'm by <laughs> myself. Like, this can be a dangerous situation. Yeah. But I think that sometimes, so a lot of men, because I have three brothers, a lot of black men will tell you that um, the way that they might get reacted to even if it's not nighttime, even if they're not coming up behind somebody, even if they're just in a space where they're just existing, they might get that same reaction from other people just by seeing them as a black man, that, that same fear, because um, not because they feel like they're in a, in a separate dangerous situation where if anyone was coming behind them, they would be scared but just the presence of a black man who might not even he might not even be walking he might just be sitting down (laughs) doing something you know it's like oh my goodness i need to be afraid because this person is a threat to me and unconsciously many people have that idea of you know black people are a threat and i think this is part of the reason why we see these things that are going on with police brutality. That's part of the reason why, um, you know, we have people who are black, who are thought to be criminals from the very get go. Mm -hmm. And you have people who are white criminals who kind of get treated kindly. And, you know, when I think about Dylan Roof, who who shot an entire church full of people, and they took him out for a cheeseburger afterwards. You know, this Insane. guy is a mass murderer and he gets taken out for a cheeseburger. Like what? You know, we see, um, you know, um, Brock Turner and this yeah. guy <laughs> raped an unconscious girl and left her behind a, you know, behind a, a building dumpster, next yeah. to a dumpster. And she didn't get, you know, any kind of justice. And it's like, well, you know, because he's he's a good kid, da 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 da. And white people get this kind of benefit of the doubt. Oh, you're just a kid. Oh, you know, he hasn't had anything else like this. Or ah, well, it was just a mistake. Even the affluenza kid, you know, this mm-hmm. kid who is so rich, they're like, oh, well, you know, he he didn't know any better. I mean, he killed people, you know, and and it's like he got, he violated his probation twice and still, you know, he didn't get Ethan Couch, his name. He he didn't get like the same kind of punishment that a black person would get for a nonviolent offense. And so we got to really say, okay, I, I have to really say if all things were equal, if this was anyone else, would my reaction be the same way? And really thinking about that, if, if this person was, had a different color skin, would my reaction be the same 
or would it be different? And really wrestling with that and being honest with yourself is something that needs to happen if you want to really open up a space of um, promoting equity. And sometimes you're going to have to look at yourself. We all need to look at ourselves and say, hey, maybe there's something that is a blind spot in my attitude and in my character that I want to, I need to address. And we all need to grow. We all need to do that. And we all need to be introspective. And there's, there is a tendency to feel defensive about admitting that you need growth. And I think that that is one of the biggest barriers that we have to actually ex- making equitable change, yeah. um, especially when you, you're talking to somebody who has never before had to face those kinds of confrontations in their own thinking. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's. You frame that so graciously to say that it's an opportunity for growth. It is. I mean, if if we if if you care about yourself, if you care about our you know Adventist community, if you care about America, if you care about being a human on this world, we must change. <laughs> we mm-hmm. have to go mm-hmm. through this painful process as uh, privileged uh, white folks, and you know it goes, of course, beyond. Um, just the small kind of personal circle that we're talking about. And I'm so glad that you've kind of, we started, talked about the personal. You have also been working as a moderator with Adventists for Social Justice. And Mm -hmm. would you mind just giving us a kind of lay of the land of what's, what's Adventism feeling right now? What are there moments of pain or joy that you're picking up on as you see the posts coming in on the uh, ASJ Facebook page? Well, one of the things that I have seen is there has been definitely an uptick in people who are interested in joining the group. So that, I mean, just exponential. And so that is encouraging. Can you, do you mind, I don't need specific numbers. I'm just curious, like, where was it at like a month ago versus, or two months ago uh, versus I I can't even really tell you, but, but I will say that we have like literally Every day we've gotten about 30, not even 30, (laughs) like about 50 new people every day, Wow! you know, since this happened. And so you're having, um, you know, hundreds of new people saying, Hey, I want to be a part of this. I want to know what I can do. I want to be, um, lend my voice to this. And I know in one day, like the day after, we had almost 200 people saying, I want to be in this involvement. I want to know what, what's the next thing that I can do. So it's kind of tapered down when I'm, when I'm talking mm-hmm. about 50s. Sure. It's, it's tapered down significantly from the day after George Floyd's murder. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that event, I think, really woke up a lot of people to the fact that the things that black people have been saying for decades is, is real. Yeah. And in, in many ways that's encouraging. And in some ways it's kind of discouraging because um, it's encouraging that there's so many people who are saying, yes, I want to be a part of this. I see that now that um, 
Christianity, part of what we do is helping the oppressed. That's what the people of God have been called to do in Isaiah and called to do in Micah and what we are called to do today in 2020. And so it's so encouraging that people are really wanting to, to be a part of that and saying that they understand now and that they really are interested and encouraged uh, to learn more and to be involved. But it's also kind of discouraging because it's kind of like, why couldn't you believe us before? Yeah. <laughs> why didn't it have to come to a point where, number one, it's videoed. And even when things begin yeah. to be videoed and broadcast, um, sometimes people want to explain the way. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult for anybody to watch that almost 10-minute video and say, you know, this was okay. Yeah, And I think that that was what kind of was the tipping point. And it, and it infuriates me that it took something so horrific to finally, to be in someone's view, like mm-hmm. right in your face on your computer screens or on your smartphone for you to watch that and see that and say, wow, you know, wow, black people really should be treated as human and I really should say something about that like I I feel like it shouldn't have taken that yeah but I am glad that it did take that and that that actually allowed some people to um, finally see what what we've been saying for a long time yeah um you know it's not the first time um you know we can absolutely I mean not just in our lifetime, we can go back to just a few years ago when the Black Lives Matter movement really got going. And, you know, Adventist social justice has been around since, you know, for about four or five years at least. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it goes back deep into, I think, our American history. And it's, we could talk about redlining and the sort of racist division of cities. Um, sealing off African-American families from the kind of basic wealth of owning a home um, for generations. Mm -hmm. And of course the history goes back even farther. There's something about the, like being forced to watch uh, violence and it's embedded Mm -hmm. in our Christian story. You know, Mm -hmm. we're used to going to church and listening to someone tell us about a man who died for our sins. And that, kind of Mm -hmm. wakes folks up out of their, you know, semi-conscious day-to-day existence, uh, Mm -hmm. at least a Mm -hmm. little bit to think about shame and guilt and, you know, trying to be a better person. And I'm just wondering how you, uh, you know, we want to avoid theologizing something that's so painful, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it is waking some folks up like a good sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you have some kind of theological thoughts that that give you hope, even though it is a little discouraging at times. Well, one of the things that I am encouraged by is, you know, this, this sounds kind of double-edged in a way, <laughs> because um, I pointed to earlier, or I alluded to like Isaiah and Amos and, and basically all of the Old Testament prophets mm-hmm. um, spoke out against um, just injustice. They spoke out against the way that that the people of God um, 
conducted themselves when they were told very specifically what they needed to do. And, you know, a lot of the times people really didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the times the, the prophets were, were not only rejected, but also killed. You know, Jesus talked about, you know, you, you, you guys killed the prophets um, even before me. So, you know, it, and for him, it was just kind of like, I'm still going to gonna say what needs to be said, even though you guys have done this before. And I know, you know, that you're going to do it to me. And, and so Christ um, did not get discouraged from that moment and decide not to speak out, even though clearly he knew what had happened in the past and what was you know, in store for him in the future. Um, and you know, John the Baptist and so many other individuals throughout the biblical record have, um, spoken against things. And I mean, John the Baptist wound up being beheaded because he spoke against a political figure. He spoke against Herod. And, you know, and, and which is also really interesting to me when people say, Oh, you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't crit- criticize people who are in positions of power. You shouldn't um, criticize the government and we shouldn't be political. And I'm like, have you guys read the Bible? <laughs> like, have you, have you actually read any of these stories? Because I don't think you have. But yeah, um, but yeah when, when we're looking at all of these things that have happened in the biblical record, um, we still see Christ calling for the followers of God to continue and, you know, continue to cry out and spare not. Right. And so even now, I know that there are going to be some people who, even with all this are unhappy. And I have been seeing, um, some of my pastoral colleagues put on their social media pages that, you know, they've been getting pushback from their, um, congregations. There's some people who have, wanted their memberships to be dropped. Some people have said they wanted to be off the leadership team, like all kinds of things. But I am encouraged that they're like, no, the prophetic voice of God's people, of the church, is not about, you know, date setting. You know, it's not about, you know, 2027 or anything like that. (laughs) That's not what prophecy is about. What the prophetic call and what the prophetic... um, just obligation is is to call out and ask people to become people who are obedient to God and in ways that are real and relevant for right now not necessarily just you know in the future in the earth made new you know once Jesus comes again right here and right now exactly we are asked to call people to making sure that they do what God's will is on earth. And, you know, we say we in the Lord's Prayer, uh, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but we're the ones who have to do that work <laughs> on earth. And we, we kind of, you know, we often will say that is not our role. That's not what we're supposed to do, but it absolutely is what our role is. That is exactly what, what God has asked us to do. And we abandon that calling when we say that we're going to avoid those kinds of issues. So I'm encouraged when I see people 
who have taken up that call and have decided that they want to, to continue, even if they get pushback and even if they get kind of a lot of negative reactions from people who truly just don't want to hear it, who don't want to be challenged, who don't want to feel badly, <laughs> but who still are um, needing to hear that. Mm. Amen. Pastor Ray, thank you very much for that message. <laughs> That's good. Um, just... Yes, you're just, uh, you know, it's just a, a short sermon for us today. <laughs> a quick homily as we learn. Just a little word. <laughs> well, it's been great talking with you. Uh, just to wrap up, I've got one last question, which is maybe could you just cast a vision for you know, um, you're obviously um, a professional psychologist with a teaching career, and you also care about Adventism. Um, and I'm wondering if you would kind of think about what's, you know, what's the future of 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 the Adventist Church, at least in America. If that's too big, um, you know, <laughs> we can go to. Um, a city or or even a community what would you like to what you know what would make you uh, or what are you working toward that you would like to see or be a part of um, as, uh, as I, we as we make our way in the world yeah I would love to see Adventism be a true community where we are asking people to put others in front of themselves and that where we are actually living that out um you know i often will see people who are very much interested in their own comfort even though we don't say that we are Mm. um even as we're we're talking about um this the the catalyzing event of George Floyd's murder and everything that came after that, Um, even before that, when we were dealing with COVID, you know, Adventism had a lot of um, just selfishness revealed, (laughs) just for lack of a better word, just a a lot of selfishness. Selfishness. Yeah. Because we were mad that our church services had to be disrupted and we were mad that we couldn't go and, you know, gather together and fellowship together the way that we used to. And we were upset that we couldn't, couldn't do all of those things that we were accustomed to. And so it got us upset and we called it injustice. And That's we right. Said that, That's right. You know, this is a violation <laughs> of my rights. And all of these different things. And then we get to a situation where someone's actual right, the right to life, the most basic and fundamental right of all, the right to just live, was, you know, taken away. And I'm encouraged that many Adventists um, saw that, wow, I need to do something. And I hope that we kind of understand that what we need to do is not advocate for our rights as just individuals, but we have to advocate for the rights of all of God's children everywhere. Yes. And I want to 
see Adventism really become that light. Because if we're saying that we are the light of the world, that we are the remnant church, that we are the body of Christ, then that means that we need to be doing exactly those things and sharing that light and just letting people know that we have a hope that other people don't. And it's not merely the second coming. It's the hope that we are the body of Christ living and breathing and working even right here and right now on this earth. And um, that that's what I would hope. I would hope that we become that because we can't be the remnant and be concerned only for our own well-being, for our own designs and interests. Like that can't be our, our end game. And I want us to be forward thinking, outward thinking, not just working to sustain the church organization, not just concerned about making sure that the institution um, stays intact because that worship of the institution is not the worship of God. The worship of God is doing the will of God uh, for for the people of God all over the world. So, well, that's, that's beautiful. That's kind of what I hope. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I join you in that hope. Thank you so much for talking with me today and uh, lending your voice to our community. I wish you all the best in all that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you um, being open and listening because I know that that isn't something that everybody wants to do <laughs> but it's such a necessary thing and i and i appreciate you giving me an opportunity to to talk oh absolutely anytime i'll have to have you come back and talk more please <laughs> all right bye-bye bye yes i knew sister white we will not fear